you're listening to the 21st Century Change Agent Show. This podcast is for those who are always looking for ways to grow as a person and as a leader. On this show, you'll find no ordinary conversations, as I will be speaking with unique people who are already rewriting the narrative. My name is Barbara Ziga, and I help companies to achieve more by putting their people first. Head to Lakehouse Consulting website to find out more and subscribe to a bite-sized, hand-picked newsletter from me. Thank you for tuning in and get ready to receive your weekly dose of inspiration. Wherever you are, thank you so much for joining me. On today's episode, you will hear me talking to Hayley Bennett, and we'll be talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion in sport. Hayley has just been included in the Football Blacklist 2020 that celebrates the most influential black people in football. This year, Hayley was listed alongside such well-known players as Manchester United, Marcus Rashford, and Aston Villa's Tyron Mings. Everyone knows, and you know, that participating in sports is one of the best ways to look after your health, both physical and mental, and it's also a lot of fun. But what if you're put off because you don't feel confident that there is a sport you can participate in where you'll be accepted and supported? This is something that affects people from all sorts of backgrounds daily, due to prejudice around race, ethnicity, religion, disability, sexual orientation, gender and even age. Most fans will have witnessed some form of discrimination in sports, be it on the field, in dressing rooms or on social media. So more needs to be done to move from awareness to action. So in today's episode, I'm joined by Hayley, who is, as she says, obsessed with football. And she's not alone. However, there still are huge gaps between opportunities in sport for women compared to their male colleagues. Hayley believes that football has the power to bring people together. However, she says this with a pinch of salt because it still excludes a lot of people. What does diversity and inclusion really look like in sport? Here is my discussion with Hayley. Hayley, thank you so much for joining me this morning on the Change Agent podcast. I'm super excited to have this conversation um, about diversity, inclusion and equity in sports. Um, so welcome on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's amazing to be here. And yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation with you. Excellent. Um, so Hayley, I know you're doing some, um, you know, absolutely amazing work um, as a consultant and you've got um, a lot of experience in, in, in the corporate world uh, and you've recently gone um, so as a solo consultant. Um, but I would love to, for you to, in your own words, tell us a, a little bit about your journey and experiences uh, that made you who you are today and to start uh, Nutmegs, uh, which is a football community for women and non-binary people of colour. And what were the things that you were hoping to address when you started off? And how has the journey been? Wow, where to start? (laughs) I think, you know, football has always been part of my life, but I didn't really get really into football until I was probably about 14. And then I became completely obsessed. Um, It was interesting because I think one of the reasons I didn't get into football, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, is because I didn't really see role models, people who looked like me, who were playing football or who spoke about football, apart from like my auntie, who's, you know, a massive football fan. 
Um, I used to, to do rhythmic gymnastics, like that was my sport when I was growing up and my sister was very, very good at it. So we used to travel the country, um, you know, taking part in competitions. My sister was very successful at it. I sometimes did all right as well. Um, but I guess that was like my idea of what sport was. To be honest, like I've never been a sporty person. I think that's why I ended up quitting gymnastics and not pursuing it any further because they used to make us do too much running. <laughs> and that was just not for me. I was about to say, you don't call yourself a non-sporty person if you do gymnastics. That's pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess like, I think I am reactive as a person, but I think it's around how, how sport was introduced to me and how like, sport especially growing up in the UK in the 90s how sport was taught in schools as well like it was very very gendered um they don't necessarily take into consideration like how young girls who are you know maybe going through puberty have different insecurities um have different interests in different sports they don't um really cater for for different like young girls needs and I think especially for me like growing up as you know a black woman with mixed heritage I remember examples of like having to do swimming lessons at school and they, you know there's so many stereotypes like black people can't swim uh, people say things like you know their bones are heavy so they can't swim because they'll sink to the bottom or people think it's you know just because of our like hair texture that we can't um, get involved in swimming but to be honest I think it was just really negative um, experiences of, of being taught certain sports that put me off from being sporty and that's just always really interested me when I got obsessed with football, it's basically opened all the doors to where I am, even in my career. Um, I studied politics at university um, after going to an all-boys school, which was not daunting for me at the time at all, because like most of my friends were men, uh, young boys, because I was so interested in football. Um, and that gave me quite a lot of confidence, to be honest, as well, to then work in really male-dominated environments. So I started as an intern at Kick It Out, which is football's equality, diversity and inclusion organisation. Mm-hmm. And that is where really I became really interested in, in diversity, equity and inclusion issues in sport and just in, I guess, the working world more generally. And then I've ended up working with multiple different sectors, but um, my passion really still is in sport. So, you know, as you said, this year I, I decided to quit my corporate job and, and start my own business doing consulting on you know th- these topics and, you know, working with different clients in different sectors. But as you said, like I started, I started Nutmegs with a friend of mine. To be honest, it was quite a selfish thing. I just wanted to have fun with it. I wanted to find a group of people I could watch football with because I didn't always have that when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And we were just really hoping to provide a safe space, um, inclusive spaces to watch football initially. So we were thinking of things like uh, screening of matches, because to be honest, like all of the venues that show football are pubs. It's really, really hard to find somewhere that's not a pub that shows football. And a lot of people for you know multiple different reasons are not comfortable sitting in a pub watching football. But it's been really hard, to be honest, to find somewhere for us to come together. So we started like working with different clubs and the FA gave us tickets as well to go and watch matches. And that's probably been the the best thing that we've done. We're just hoping to get more people involved, like more people to come together through through football because it's it's very isolating when you are like in a minority position and you don't know other people who who want to watch the game in a similar ways as you. Mm. So you started off as ultimately um, a bit of a friends club to watch football together. So have the um, mission of Nutmex changed um, as you've, you know, developed it into, you know, what it is today? 
Um, so I guess we've got like three key goals. We want to, you know, bring people together. So we've got this like social inclusion aspect of the work we do. We also um, wanted to bring, I guess, people who otherwise wouldn't watch football um, together to watch football as well. So you use people who are really interested in this topic to influence others. And I, I think I say that with a bit of a caveat that, you know, we're not a diversity initiative for football. So we don't feel like it's our responsibility to, I guess, widen access to, to football. But we also know that it is such a great way to connect with people. So we want to obviously um, reach out to as many people as we can. And I think that, you know, the last thing that we we really wanted to focus on is just, you know, creating inclusive spaces. So finding new ways to watch football. It doesn't always have to you know be done in the same sort of framework as what constitutes being a football fan. And I don't think that has really changed. Obviously, now things are virtual. The community aspect, keeping together, showing role models is what we're having to do online. Um but I think it's changed in the, in the sense that, you know, we we can't really find venues that are going to screen matches that are like fully accessible and fully inclusive. So it has been more about going to matches. So I guess it's around like creating partnerships with 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 football clubs and with football bodies that can that can help support what we're trying to do. And we've had really good responses, to be honest. I think I've been really impressed by the support that we have got. Amazing. And I know that you recently have been um, listed in the Black Power List in sports, um, which is absolutely amazing. Quite massive congratulations on that. Um, so what does such recognition mean to you? You know what? It sounds so cheesy, but it actually just means so much because I think to be recognised by people who you really, really admire yourself and to be recognised by your peers um, is it, yeah it just it means more than any sort of other accolades that I've had because to be honest um I didn't yeah I, I mean when I got told that I was on the football blacklist I I initially said like to my, one of my friends I was like oh I don't think I really deserve it because we've not done that much this year um we've not necessarily done all the things that I had planned and I just felt like oh obviously I'm really happy but I didn't think that I deserved it and then she reminded me she's like actually Hayley you've done this this and this um you know people have really become more aware that you've managed to grow nutmegs even in a pandemic so like shut up basically <laughs> you deserve it um and it's true because I think I've I've been listed on on the football blacklist before as as one to watch uh but I've never been on on the list itself and you know there are literally some amazing people on that list that I really admire and then I've heard from people who who nominated me and I think that's just such a nice thing to do to go out of your way to nominate somebody it was very humbling, to be honest, um, but it was it was a nice reminder because Nutmegs is completely unfunded. Well, it's funded by me, basically. Um, mm-hmm. I'm doing it, you know, all through the night when I have time. I put a lot of energy into creating it. So it's, it's nice to get a little bit of recognition and obviously increase the reach that we have as well so we can get to, to more people who, who need us. That's right. And it's amazing. And I think another amazing thing is that, you know, your friends, you know, those kind of people who remind us, you know, why we started in the first place and actually why are we worthy on, of recognition or partnerships? Those are the types of people we need in our lives. I know, right? <laughs> um, but absolutely, as you, you know, have already mentioned, you know, diversity is so important because, you know, naturally it promotes creativity, it brings unique perspectives, it creates opportunities. And and obviously diversity serves in sports in very different ways and it helps, you know, teams to thrive in similar ways. Um, In fact, there is a study um, involving football specifically um, that shows that 
increasing um, levels of diversity yields better performance on the field. And through creativity, cooperation and um, avoidance of this um, group thing, um, a number of sports teams can compete at a higher level. Um, and I'm sure you will agree that at the base of any DNI conversation is education and awareness. And I know this is something that you dedicate a lot of your time for through your own consultancy, as well as being a guest lecturer on race and sport at um, University of Bolton. So where do you usually start this education journey to inspire people to open up their eyes and minds to these issues? Oh, do you know what? Such a good question. Um, I think, to be honest, what I will say is that I come at people on a level um, because, you know, I have grown up in, you know, a really diverse and you know multicultural, very inclusive environment. Um, I... I guess I could be, you know, close-minded to people who don't have that same experience uh, as me. But the reality is I've travelled all over the world, the country, doing this kind of work. People do not have a clue. Um, people are not, on, you know, on the same level of awareness as me. So I have to really, like, understand that. And and start with the basics. I think people also want to be able to have conversations about these topics in a in a really safe space. And what I mean by that is that, People can ask questions and be curious and, you know, come to the table with questions that they would not otherwise ask. What I don't mean is that you can be offensive and say what you want in, you know, education sessions because, you know, I have had situations where that's happened, but I try and set, you know, very good ground rules because you've got to, you know, be respectful of everyone who's attending. A lot of the stuff I start off with really is about, like, terminology. So there's a lot of, like, terms we use every day or when we're talking about diversity inclusion that people don't even understand the connotations associated with them they don't understand the difference so things like um you know should we say disabled people or people with with disabilities do we know the difference between those sentences and the i guess the history and the meaning um behind using both of these phrases um should we say like females or or women um is it okay to to call somebody black I mean to be honest like a lot of my sessions I ask that question and it always divides opinions like oh I'm not comfortable saying black and I'm just like well it's fine to say it and people just don't want to take my word for it so it is about you know starting at absolute basics but I think it's just trying to open people's minds and I I, I mean the, the sessions that I find the most powerful is when you have people come and talk to me for like 15 minutes at the end and just, you know, ask questions, share their thoughts, share their stories, because then I know that I've connected with that with that individual. But it's it's really interesting work, to be honest. I've, I I write a lot of notes and one day I might write a book or something about it because it is it's fascinating stuff. Mm, people are fascinating. And and I also think that it probably is oh it, not probably, it is okay to um to start within your comfort zone and because you know we often beat people up about not knowing enough about subjects of disability race gender lgbt plus and so on however you know as you mentioned you know people often just don't have the right terminology they might not mean bad um they just haven't been exposed to the level of diversity as you know like yourself and they just don't have the right terminology they don't know where to begin without being judged so sometimes it is okay to start within within your comfort zone. And what I mean by that is, for instance, you know, if you like football, switch it up, you know, watch a female football game or even better, 
basketball, you know, or or any other, you know, type of sport. I learned something about, you know, those female players, even more so female of colour players, learn about their journeys into sport and so on. And even within that comfort zone, you're already starting to open up, um, you know, your thinking and, and your, you know, your the channels that you access to sports. And ultimately, the discomfort of addressing a certain topic is a sign of privilege. And that is what we need to recognise and act upon um, and, and ultimately open up sporting opportunities to a wider range of individuals. Um, so obviously we talk, you know, about formal education through, you know, higher education institutions or expert consultants coming in um, and conducting these sessions. However, this education often needs to begin at homes and schools by raising awareness of these topics um, with our children very early on. Because boys and girls often have very different experiences and journeys with sports. Um, and there still are a lot of stories where there's only, you know, one girl on a boy's team, you know, again, you know, saying football. And this makes girls feel uh, like they are playing a boy's sport. Um, and I was recently listening to an interview of a teenage girl who um, was saying that there were, um, you know, three children in family, two boys and a girl, ultimately herself, uh, and she had two brothers. And she um, she had to engage in sport and play football behind the back of her father and her brothers because to them it was not acceptable that a girl would play sports. To them, sports was a very gender-specific activity. And, and this girl said that ultimately it was a very traumatic experience because her teammates would be asking, oh, oh, where is your dad? Why is he not supporting you? And she always had to come up with these excuses and lie and say, you know, he's at work or otherwise occupied. And and ultimately, you know, one of the aspects for this is the historical stigma associated with sports. Um, but again, you know, as you already mentioned, there's just not enough diversity of accessible role models for girls to look up to who would help normalise in these conversations. Um, I'm sure, you know, it, it, it's getting better and that's, you know, potentially a question for you. Um, however, even just a few years ago, you know, girls, um, you know, of colour or different religion had to look up to white female players because mm-hmm. there was no one else there who looked like them, as you've, you know, already have mentioned. Um, and I recently spoke to um, an ex-semi-professional male football player from Scandinavia who was reflecting on his earlier experiences. And he remembered that uh, when he was playing at age of 13 or so, um, they had a single girl on their team. And on the pitch, they never saw her any different from any other team member. However, off pitch, they naturally had to shower and get dressed separately. So if they had just won a game, obviously the atmosphere in the boys' changing rooms was great. Everyone was celebrating and laughing. Or she couldn't experience that and she couldn't share these moments with them. Um, and he also remembers that there was once um, during during a, term, a tournament, uh, away game, uh, where there was an incident of a pervert, for one of the better words, uh, walking into her changing room and intimidating her because there were no you know, female coaches um, on the team who could accompany her. Um, and this just must have felt so humiliating and isolating for her. And I'm sure there are, you know, plenty of other stories like this. And, and, and I'm sure, you know, you've heard of those as well. So the sporting experience for young boys is so much different to what a girl goes through. And even though the talent might be evenly distributed, the opportunity isn't. 
So it does start with this education. It does start with schools making an effort to ensure that everyone gets a fair chance. And with sports clubs and gyms and sponsors, you know, making an effort to identify and tackling these potential barriers from, you know, clamping down prejudiced comments, um, altering dress codes. So hijab wearing women can, can participate as well to train in coaches to communicate better um, with, say, deaf people. So we'd love to get your, you know, some of your stories and some of your views in this. And how have you seen this changing over the past years? Yeah, it's, do you know what? It's everything you said is spot on. I think even to the point where um, one of me and my friend, I've actually written a children's book because we recognise that actually there's a massive role that literature can play in classrooms, at home, in promoting um, girls playing sport. There are so, so few books. I mean, you could probably count them on two hands and these are published like published by, you know, huge publishing houses or independent books that depict girls playing sport. Um, and that's something, you know, we're working on that we're we're hoping to to challenge and, and change because I think, you know, we went we had an agent, we, you know, we contacted a lot of publishers, all the publishers, big publishing houses said they loved our book but they didn't know how to market it. They didn't one of them said that they didn't think that um women's women's sport had had its like time yet so I think you know this is something we have to really question um because I you know I, I you know 100% disagree with that and I think you know we we won't know I guess how marketable women's um girls sport is until we actually you know stick our head above the parapet and do it I think the other thing I would say is that um you know those experiences of, of people that you've shared they go up all the way to, you know, people playing semi-professional or professional sport even. Like, I remember reading just this week that Liverpool Football Club have, have got a new training ground facility and they haven't got um, basically space in the facility for the, the women's team to, to train there. Yet they've got tennis courts and all kinds of other things um, for the men. So there's a lot of football grounds, um, community grounds and, and things like that that are even built and don't have women's changing facilities. And that's at grassroots level all the way to, you know, the very, very top, which for me is just that sends all the wrong messages because that then makes it OK for a school to say to, you know, girls, you can't play football because we've not got the facilities or we've not got enough pitches for you, which mm. is something that still happens a lot. People happen to petition their... Um, their children's schools to allow their young girls to, to play sports or to play football which is you know there's so many benefits associated with playing sport as well like this is the thing that I don't understand it's not just the point of you know girls who play sport love the sport so we should let them do what they enjoy I think that's probably the most important thing but there's also like all the skills you learn that uh, young girls are missing out on teamwork um to be honest navigating the, the corporate world and having a sport background is is very very handy to have you know I've always been told this like having an interest in sport or having a sport background will give you an advantage in, in some corporate sectors where to be honest most of the people who are at the top of these organizations are men who've who've gone to private school and and played a sport <laughs> so it's, it, it really helps in terms of relationships later on in life but just from a fitness point of view I was so unfit to the point where I don't think I did like any exercise for about 10 years when I was a teenager um, and for university because I just didn't you know find something that I enjoyed doing. Like the health benefits of doing sport is something we need to, you know, push forward so that girls can, you know, be on the same sort of playing field. But I, I think it's, 
I think it's like a grassroots work that needs to be done, but it also needs to be led by the top. Like we can't have, you know, massive football clubs, for example, treating their um, women's team as, you know, less than so much. So like, I just think it's appalling. It sends a completely wrong message. And, you know, there's a lot of women who play, who play for, clubs that are associated with like Premier League clubs and they have, you know, two or three other jobs because they're trying to afford um all the costs that come with playing football professionally or at a, on a you know a large stage. You know, there's so many stories of I guess role models that I have, people like um Rachel Yankee, Alex Scott, pioneers of, of women's football from my generation, who were having to wash kits for the for the men's team in order to you know pay for the 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 subs that they had to pay to to play women's football and you know some of these stories are are quite inspiring but just scary that it's it's happened so recently and it still happens today actually there's so much work to be done hmm. I think you know you're right about that you know the there is still so much to do at a very grassroots level. You know, if we talk about accessibility, like you mentioned about the female changing facilities, that's basics. That's basics that sends the wrong message that actually there's no females welcome here because we've got nothing created here for you. Um, but what I really liked, uh, you know, what you talked about uh, was also around, you know, the, you know, some very essential yet basic skills that actually girls don't learn because they are um, not playing these team sports because they are excluded from this um, community. Um, and then also, you know, for you personally, um, that actually, you know, sports has given you a lot of these skills and that therefore you've navigated the uh, corporate world uh, much better because there are so many men in corporate world, especially at those top levels. So do you think um, there is a correlation between why there are so so many men at those top levels in corporates uh, and potentially, you know, doing a better job with, um, you know, be it negotiating their salary or, you know, other things, because those are, you know, some of those fundamental skills that they have um, gained in spaces where females haven't been welcome. Oh, that's such a good question, you know. I think it's, for me, um, you know, rightly or wrongly, I don't necessarily feel like it's like confidence gaps or, or skills gaps that are preventing women from getting ahead in organisations. It's often like their processes or entrenched barriers that are pre- preventing it. Like I know so many, like, and to be honest, I'm a super confident woman. Um, and I, you know, have have... I guess been held back in places that I've worked because I think to be honest really good women are often exploited in when they are really good when they are confident um so there's still always those barriers and the exclusion that goes on that prevents women from getting to the top but what I would say is I think like you know there's that you're saying about like having an old boys network you see people who have season tickets to go and watch um sports clubs all of the men go they're networking and doing that kind of thing um, socially, which women are often excluded from. So I think even that, like so many corporate organisations have boxes in, you know, stadiums or sports stadiums or have like partnerships with, with sports clubs. And they, they need to be thinking about how equitable and diverse it is in terms of how they how they access those. But, yeah, it's 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 super interesting. I think I've been in you know several interviews when I've been asked, like, what football team I support? which is, yeah, it's such a weird question to ask. I always give them a really super neutral answer, like, I just love all football teams, because you never know, you're going to get somebody who's like, hates the team that you support. 
but it's it does go on. And I've been in interviews as well where men have been interviewed and they're asked something like that, or it's shown in their CV that they play football or another sport, and they're having all these like sort of chit chat conversations during an interview, which then give them a, a a clear advantage because they're feeling more confident, they're feeling more at ease. Um, so some of that is like structural like biases and in, in processes, but also human human biases as well. Mm. It's actually quite interesting because obviously in England, you know, foot or in the UK, football is such a huge and also very emotional and sensitive topic. Um, because from my experience, also I have heard of occasions where um you know one of the questions in a in a job interview would be you know what football club do you support and you know and if let's say you apply for a job in you know Liverpool and you support Everton that's a no-no or if you are in Southampton and you support uh, sorry you apply for a job in Southampton you support uh, Portsmouth that's also because there are some real 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 rivalry especially for these you know neighbour um, football clubs and, and often I have heard these horror stories where often these interviews end up in uh, rejection just because of that yeah it doesn't surprise me <laughs> no it's horrendous so, so there is still you know where you know football and sports have not necessarily you know isolated within the sports world and when you watch the game and you leave it there and you go home and you're a different person or you go to work and you're a different person it's still you know, drags with you and you still potentially are biased because of, you know, even in hiring decisions based on what sports club or or football club specifically someone supports. And that should and that shouldn't be any, you know, criteria in, in hiring decisions. And you know what? I think it's so like it shows how sport or like you know, how gender is just such a social construct as well because there will be men who like are not interested in football and then they're seen as like not men <laughs> because they've not they've not oh. got interested in football or in maybe another sport. Or even if they are interested in a sport which is not considered like macho, they will, you know, be excluded by other men. It's just so it, you know, this is why this topic is so important to discuss for everyone. Because, you know, there's a lot of people who don't, you know, fit into the box of what, you know, um a successful you know I guess corporate leader would look like and often it, it disproportionately impacts women the most you know people of color disabled people people from the lgbtq plus community but it can also you know it can impact these you know straight um white men <laughs> who often aren't involved in these conversations or who just you know happen to support the wrong club exactly <laughs> so um what about equality in sports as a business I mean, it's undeniable that men's sport teams receive more attention, more views, you know, TV rights. And so money flows there from sponsors. And the gap between the female and male salaries in sports are just remarkable for one of the better words. So, for instance, in 2019, uh, Raheem Sterling was the highest paid English player in football, netting around 300k in wages each week. And this is before any sponsorship deals. Yeah. So this is reported to be around 50 times more than some of the top female players in the world. I mean, of course, it's undeniable, you know, football is a business, you know, Manchester United is listed in stock exchange. So what are your views on this? You know, at what point does this need to start being regulated, say, by introducing salary caps similar as it is in NHL? Um, you know, I'm sure there are things that can, can be done by clubs and sponsors to change this narrative. 
Mm, it's such a messy question. And, you know, whenever this topic is discussed, it's only like the extremes that are, are talked about, which I don't think is helpful to the, the debate. I think, to be honest, like, we need to just, like, strive towards equity within sport because, and, and that doesn't always necessarily revolve around salaries, which I think, let's be, you know, realistic, the, the salaries in, in men's sport, and especially football, are ridiculous, and I, mm-hmm. I don't think they're justifiable. That's just my personal opinion. Um, but at the same time, I think we need to, you know, address issues throughout, like the fact that quite a lot of um, sportswear is only created for men, Boots, like if you're playing a sport where you need studs under your, you know, on your on your boots, a lot of the time they're not created for women. So there's so many like other issues to do with equity that are forgotten in this conversation about pay. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would say is that you know the re- one of the reasons why we're at the stage we're at with with women's football, for example, is that you know the football association association banned women from playing football. So they, there was a time when women's football was super, super popular during the war. Um, essentially, like to, to, you know, make history very condensed, um, men didn't like it. The fact that, you know, women's football was popular and it was banned. So we're not actually starting on a level playing field. It's not that, you know, women are just not as good. There's been no investment. There's not even been any structures in place for women's football for, for so, so long. So I think, you know, I'm a strong believer in in positive action. I think more needs to be invested in women's football in order to get, you know, level that playing field. And then we can start talking about whether people deserve the same salaries. But, you know, I think there's also like a role that individual organisations can play because you have got like a club, um, Lewis FC, who who, um, pays their men's and women's team equitably um, at, at an international level. Um, even the English Football Association has said that they pay their women's and men's like per match and their bonuses mm-hmm. for representing England. So I think, you know, there are things that can definitely be done, but it's such like a, a bigger issue than is made out. And also gender pay gap in working behind the scenes in football. I think before we before we started recording, I was talking about how salaries in sport are, to be honest, quite low in general. Mm-hmm. But you will often see there's massive gender pay gaps. Well, actually, I think I could be wrong for this, so not, don't um, hold me to this. But if you look at all of the gender pay gap reports on the government website, the, the people with the highest um, gender pay gaps are football clubs, mm. or at least like amongst the highest. So, you know, there's there's still like gender pay gap issues as well as like pay equity issues as well. That's right. And again, you know, you're right. There is, you know, we're not starting a level playing field. You know, there is absolutely, you know, grassroots things that we need to sort out first and foremost. Um, but, you know, but who who's supposed to take, you know, responsibility and some sort of positive action towards it? Because often, you know, we see, and this is also in corporate, you know, where, where you put, um, you know, a person of colour into a role of, let's say, chief diversity officer. And so basically, so someone who is, already victimized you're telling them to go and sort out the corporate (laughs) right so again you know in in the same with football you know who who do you ask to go and sort that out you know when when football clubs and when all of these associations and and sponsors hold so much power in this um in and and still perpetuates the current system so who's supposed to you know you know, be the the first one. Is it, it does it come through policy and governance and 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 compliance, or from the, the, I guess the compliance and legal point of view, 
or is it through um, campaigning from you know from these role models to raising these um, topics to um, to public you know h- how do we actually you know reach that playing field mm. do you know what when I do like my lectures on this topic I talk about like there's so many different areas where people are working to promote equity mm. in sports so you have got like, a lot of athletes who are activists and we're seeing that with the U.S. women's national team who are campaigning essentially for their equal pay um, I actually think it's really unfair when we are heralding all of these people who are just out there to do their jobs as like activists and heroes. They shouldn't have to be doing this. Like, they shouldn't have to fight for their own um, rights. Um, but often that is what's what's most powerful because they have got, you know, huge visibility and reputa- uh, reputation. But there are, you know, diversity initiatives that exist within, within sport across the board. Um, some are you know, set by governing bodies, global organisations. Uh, there's regulation. Um, obviously, as well, you know, sport is governed by the law of the land. So, you know, this is why we're seeing football clubs having to publish gender pay gaps. And, you know, this is why, you know, it's interesting when around how equal pay law works, because how do we argue that, you know, women deserve equal pay? How does the law in the UK, for example, or the US in the context of, of what's happening with football there, how do we translate that to make that applicable to sport? Or is it just never going to never gonna work in that way? The Equality Act, even in the UK, has been very, very rarely used in sport. Um, and I think, to be honest, sport thinks it's above, above the law, if I'm completely honest. But um, that you've got, like, regulation taking place. You have got a lot of campaigns and campaigning organisations or individuals who are pushing for change. And you've also got a lot of grassroots initiatives that are just saying, even I would say nutmegs, like we're just saying we're going to do our own thing. Um, You've got a lot of of clubs out there who are just saying, no, we're going to start our own thing. We're not going to associate with, I guess, the mainstream of sport. So it's there's so many different approaches taking, taking place. What is overlooked, and this is where I guess my my two worlds combine, what are sponsors doing? You will see sponsors who are out here winning awards, most inclusive employer, um, top employer for women, um, you know, advertising how um, much diversity and inclusion means to them. And they're sponsoring a football club who does not practice what they're what they're preaching mm. make that make sense because i don't understand it i think sponsors should use the power that they've got to do more in sport they like like i guess the visibility that having their logo on a sports top or you know flashing up on a screen gives them but they don't actually want to use that responsibility they've got to change what's happening in sport and it contradicts their own organization's values I think that, you know, these corporates, these massive insurance companies, these, you know, airlines or whatever you have on front of on front of, you know, shirt sponsors, they need to play their part because at the moment they are not doing enough at all. And it's it's they they've got the power. Even like broadcasting organizations, I think especially in football, most of the money in football clubs comes from um the broadcasting rights. So people like Sky. Sky are like inclusive employer of the year, all this stuff. What are you doing to promote um, equality in sport? What are you doing to influence the the sports that you that you show on your TV stations? Even with Sky, like you know, not to not to single out Sky, but they talk about inclusion, they talk about diversity. Why are all of your licenses for for showing uh, Sky Sports marketed towards pubs? 
who is owning all of the, the venues that you license your um your rights for your your matches to you know are you not thinking that we need to diversify the audience who are who are buying our packages to show them in our venues that's like the biggest hurdle we've had with nutmegs that everywhere who's who's given a license is a pub um and i'd love to know like the diversity around who's owning all of these pubs that are showing it um but they need to pull their finger out and and look a little bit deeper but it is so like tick box it is very much based on what is meant to look good but no one's actually prepared to do the work and that's so powerful and is you know and so spot on because ultimately it's not only you know the football clubs or you know the players it's the whole supply chain you know challenging each other so if I'm giving you money and I'm calling myself inclusive are you actually inclusive the fact that you put a badge you know on your website or at the bottom of your signature saying most inclusive or bronze you know level of inclusivity but actually when you look at their board when you look at you know their initiatives and actually that they don't don't walk their talk yeah. it's embarrassing but people don't challenge it though I think people love like this sort of like toxic positivity when it comes to diversity and inclusion no one ever wants to do the hard work it's mm-hmm. it's easy to write a blog when it's you know international women's day it's easy to write like or do an event for Black History Month, that like positive stuff, but no one ever wants to do the hard work. And then it's often is it is, you know, put on people who are in vulnerable positions to do that calling out uh, to their detriment. Um, which is I guess one of the reasons why I'm independent, because I don't think I could ever work as like a diversity manager in a company because it's just yeah, it wouldn't work for me. I probably wouldn't last very long. <laughs> but we need we need people to be able to connect the dots and you know I always push for that yeah but I, I do believe that sponsors have got such a huge huge role to play mm-hmm. it's it's not acceptable I think there are some who are trying to do stuff so I think in terms of like the, the sort of promoting diversity side you've got like Barclays who do a lot in football who are will put on events who will you know showcase showcase stories that otherwise wouldn't be told but you know they do. They have a huge budget for diversity and inclusion. They do great work. What are they? What are they asking the Premier League for in terms of you know being one of their biggest sponsors? That's right. And there is one more aspect uh, that I want to look at is you know mental health. And obviously you already talked about you know um, toxic positivity. That can also you know be um, is also one aspect of it. But um, and I guess there is you know two aspects of it. Is you know so first and foremost is that sort of extreme you know of. Uh, when you do get to the top of the sport that you love and you get the you know the taste of fame and 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 money and but often when a young person from you know a small town makes it big and gets rich literally overnight you often see them you know going mad with the money and and which can turn into you know addiction problems crimes or you know coming out the other end more broke than before and then again you know for females again you know we, we talked about this you know system that doesn't you know, support or welcome the, them into um, into you know the industry of sport. Ultimately, do sports people get the financial and mental well being support that they require? Do you have any stories um, that you can share, or maybe you know, have you seen this change? You know, have you seen any investment going in you know towards mental well being? To answer a question, do they get enough support? No, <laughs> there are things that are being done, and I think, um, especially within academies or um, supporting like players you know, or sports people on pathways to that elite level, 
you know they do you know you know education around mental health there's a lot of obviously sports psychologists who are you know recognizing where clubs or you know sports organizations are recognizing the the importance of the mind in terms of performance and obviously you know having a good mindset ties into that but to be honest like this is going to get a bit deep but you know how elite sport works is actually very exploitative towards you know athletes anyway Mm. they're there basically as like um they're not even people they're just seen as 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 you know a commodity so I think at the end of the day their their mental health is never going to be something that matters that much Mm. there are you know some amazing people like even one of my um friends Paul Mortimer he does a lot of work in football around mental health Mm -hmm. um he's a a counsellor he played football himself he supports a lot of um, players and clubs in that area. There are like organisations like the PFA in football, the Players Union, who have like a dedicated team and, and hotline for this topic. But I just think the very nature of elite sport, as I said, because of the exploitation that's involved, you know, you're never going to get a situation where people's mental health does come first. And I think, to be honest, you don't often hear that many stories about like women's um stories with relate with regards to mental health because I think even still like when you're a woman playing at playing sport on an elite level you you still have to you know buy into that like sort of macho environment like talking about how I feel even you know just today um actually which is very topical is that you know today is the first time that FIFA the you know global governing body of football has said that there's going to be maternity leave introduced for women players in football (laughs) before then there was no like clear guidelines on what that would look like I mean it's 2020 right I know (laughs) what we're talking about that that's sort of where we're at you know there is support and I think there are support networks in place as well which are pretty good but it's I think as well it's like I feel like well-being and belonging are so intertwined so I think it's always going to be those who feel like they don't belong those who are marginalized who are going to experience like poor mental health with regards to sport and also just the very nature of sport being competitive like you have to give it your all you're going to win you're going to lose some days it's it's you know recognizing that mental health is like on a continuum is is important but even like physical well-being you know there's so many discussions at the moment around um heading the ball in football we're expected to, you know, allow players to go throughout life having head, head in the ball so much, even though all these studies are showing that it, you know, basically causes dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, people people's well-being is definitely not important enough at the moment. But I do think more people are speaking out and you had like some amazing um, sports people speak out about their own stories. And I think, to be honest, this links so much to inclusivity because... Look what's 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 happened. What happens in terms of um, the lack of representation of LGBTQ athletes in most sports, um, and the impact that must be having on people's mental health? It's just yeah, I can't even fathom how hard it must be for people. Um, even when you see women's football, people think it's very inclusive. Mm. There are a lot of players at a high level who are not, you know, um, out or visibly out. So it must be it must be really hard from that aspect too. Again, you know, everything that you, you've said, and even though you've um, said it's deep, those are basics, those are, you know, grassroots. This is, you know, only today, you know, in 2020, they've showed actually, they recognise there are females. And and for these professional players, um, even though they love sport, it's also their job. And, you know, and in workplaces, we do have, you know, policies around maternity leave. Well, some better 
than others for sure. Uh, but the fact that, you know, there are still places and whole industries that haven't recognized, um, you know, basic human needs, basic, you know, sort of physiological things that happen within, you know, families and more specifically for females, it's just just mind-blowing, just mind-blowing. It is. A, yeah, it's a whole world out there that just needs so much work. It's It's very scary. But I think it's we are moving in a good direction, but it's just at snail's pace. It's we can't keep up with with the demand and what's needed. Mm. This is why like, I do feel like a radical approach needs to be taken. We can't just have like one diversity officer and their their responsibility is to work on like a ten year plan, introducing bit by bit. Like we need to actually just start from the beginning and, and implement basics. Mm. But I, I to be honest, there's such a backlash whenever these sort of initiatives are introduced or whenever we talk about diversity inclusion issues of sport from fans and from other people involved in the game so this is part of the issue as well like people actually don't want us to push for progress Hayley mm. it's been such a deep and bold conversation and we've covered a lot in such a short space of time however it's important that the conversation doesn't stop here I appreciate you sharing your personal stories, your own experience and knowledge in the space, and thank you for making this conversation so topical and relatable for everyone, regardless whether they are into sports or not. Because it is because it is not just sports, it is all connected, starting with our families. What are the conversations that we are having around these topics? That's what we tell our daughters about sport is different to what we say to our sons. It is our job places. Are we really inclusive? Or is diversity something that is outsourced to an external agency for PR? What are the partnerships that we have? And are they really partnerships? Or we are just buying advertising in these spaces? So you're right. This this is a whole ecosystem that needs a radical revolution. And I'm so pleased that there are such young, forward-thinking people like you who are not afraid to point at and call out the elephant in the room and who are pushing for changing these narratives. Cheers, Vibra. It's been so good to, to chat to you. And, you know, we cover quite a lot of ground today, I think. There's <laughs> a, lot, a lot that we covered. So I, I really hope that the, the listeners appreciate the conversation and get involved and like continue to be curious on this topic because we also need individuals like people who are your listeners fans etc to you know ask these kind of questions and to to push for change um and to you know demand this visibility and, and access to role models that we've been talking about as well so thanks so much for having me thank you again so much Haley, for engaging in this conversation with me and thank you for joining us i am hoping this makes you look at sport differently If you're a fan, to diversify your own comfort zone to enrich your sporting experience. And equally, if you don't consider yourself a fan, I hope you still appreciate the connection and role of sport in your life, whether as a parent, a professional or otherwise. I'm excited to keep following Hayley's amazing work and see her giving this space a shake up your needs. Get involved in the conversation by tweeting using hashtag changeagentpodcast or reach out to me directly using the details in the description section. Also, make sure you connect to Hayley. Her details are also there. In the meanwhile, stay healthy, stay fit and stay safe. Until next time.